Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Christopher, for his support as well as all my other Patreon subscribers. If you would like to support the podcast financially and gain access to exclusive companion mini-episodes, articles, group Zoom meetings, two brand new series of interviews, or even conducting lessons, head over to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium where you will find six different levels of subscription starting at just £5 a month. Alternatively, go to justgiving.com, search for a mic on the podium and make a one-off donation there. Details are in the show notes below. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor who started his musical career as a rehearsal pianist, but then quickly entered the world of opera. He's been a music director in both Norway and Belgium, and is currently music director in Italy and the UK, as well as presenting some superb documentaries about the world of opera and singing on BBC TV. It's a very great pleasure to welcome Sir Antonio Papano. Tony, it is wonderful to meet you, to see you and to speak with you today. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Well, I'm medium uh, or <laughs> bad, depending on the moment, like everybody else. Well, of course, yes. Um, uh, we were just chatting before I pressed record of the fact that you were you were getting involved in some piano practice. And I've been writing scripts for films and the sort of things that, you know, we spend our time doing, which normally we, well, I mean, in your case, you will have been practicing the piano, but normally we'd be out there waving arms around and organizing orchestras. And yeah, it's funny times, isn't it? It is. I have been playing the piano quite a bit more than usual, which is very interesting. Part of that is by necessity, because I'm having to play certain recitals that have been set up, and recitals are one of the things that have been salvaged to one degree or another. And the other thing is that as a musician that comes from the piano, I've learned that actually most of the self-teaching that I do, which every conductor does, Mm. is I get most things or I'm made aware of many things by being at the piano. And the reason for that is that you are in contact with the sound. I mean, a conductor is telling other people all the time Mm. how to manipulate sound, whether it's about balance, whether it's about dynamics, whether it's about color, um, you name it. There's so many different ways of approaching sound uh, attack, of course. And if you are having to answer those questions yourself, you you understand the musicians in front of you better. Of course, the fact that I'm a pianist, you know, grew up playing the piano, that's in a certain way, you could say that's the original me. Most <laughs> most conductors are not born conductors. They, they will have played an instrument before. And, and somehow I think that stays close to you as it should I think yeah that's very true um I mean sitting next to me on my desk is my violin which I stopped playing professionally seven years ago but it doesn't mean that I don't pick it up now and again and try some bones out and then get lost in the moment and think oh yeah well yeah I still love playing this thing uh, which I hardly <laughs> ever touch um let's go back and find out when the original me first um encountered the piano what age were you and did you come from a musical family was music part of growing up for you well it was Uh, but in one department. My father was a singer Mm. and simultaneously also a voice teacher. Mm. And so we had a piano in the house. At the age of about six, six and a half, I started taking piano lessons. You've got to remember, though, at that time that, you know, there was some piano training in in schools. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, You know, there were keyboards, even dummy keyboards, you know, I mean, just... Mm to be able to find notes and, you know, do, re, mi and all that stuff. And so I had music around me or, and at school one was made aware that music is something that is a a necessary part of your education. Mm. It's no longer the case, unfortunately, and uh, Mm. which saddens me to no end. And I think is a real problem for classical music going forward, but that's a whole, uh, uh, that's a whole subject in itself. But I was fortunate enough to, you know, to start piano lessons. I I, I wasn't crazy about it, to be honest <laughs> with you. I loved playing football. And but I, you know, I I played I learned how to play, you know, the romance in G of Beethoven. And I played the the theme from um, 
match of the day. I used to play that for everybody who used to come to the house, you know. But I used to do these associated board examinations through the Royal College of Music that everybody did, you know, grade one, grade two, and all that, and theory that went along with that. And I got to grade five, and I remember getting the the little note that says you pass with distinction, the you know the piano part, and that I can say with total security and definition that that was the moment the light bulb, you know, yeah, came on, and that it that that moment changed my life. I don't know why grade five. I mean, it's not exactly you're not playing Rachmaninoff third piano concerto or anything, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I was no uh, Mozart. Uh, when I was a kid, but it was the moment for me. Mm. And um, just after that, we moved to America. My my parents were always very restless people. And uh, um, yeah, we moved to America. My mother's parents and her sister were there um, just to give it a try. You know, in the early 70s, this was mm. 1973, there was still an idea that, oh, that, you know, the streets are paved with gold or something. I had at that point already started accompanying my father's students because I, my piano playing got better and better. And so after school, I used to take uh, from Pimlico, the 88 bus, and I used to go to Marylebone High Street. And behind there, there, was a, there were studios that you could rent by the hour. My father used to teach in the afternoon and evening. So after school, I used to get on the bus, go down there and... Uh, after he'd done a half an hour of technique, I would take over and do the songs or the art songs or or opera, what have you. And I started to learn how to sight read and how to do all that and to understand the voice and very importantly, understand singing and singers. Mm. I had no idea that this would become, a, you know, a major part of my life. But 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 that was the beginning of it. And uh, so I was a working musician from the age of 10, you know. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, I'd love to briefly go back to your light bulb moment and how it can be for any random reason. Um, you know, the fact that, as you said, you, you got your certificate telling you you passed with grade five with distinction and that was yours. Mine was watching a TV program. You know, I watched uh, that. You may remember it in the mid 80s. There was a documentary about the life of the London Symphony Orchestra called The Life of an Orchestra. And I was 15 years old. And I saw this and thought, my God, you can do that for a job. Wow. You know, and all of a sudden my interest in the violin, you know, uh, increased greatly. And my interest in becoming an England cricketer decreased an awful lot. Um, <laughs> you know, much the same as, as maybe you. But you know, isn't it amazing that there is that, these things that shape your life so early on. And you can look back on now and go, you know, my God, how helpful, how wonderful that was to be in that situation. Well, uh, no question. No question about it. Also, my father still had dreams of singing and so he would practice and I would accompany all the Italian operas. He was a tenor and I, you know, I sang the soprano to his tenor or the baritone and, and I learned a big chunk of the repertoire, you know, yeah. Otello, Rigoletto, Ballo in Maschera, La Forza del Destino, Aida, um, La Boheme, Tosca, Butterfly, you know, all these these uh, incredible pieces that I would then go on to conduct, except at that time, I had not even a really the faintest clue that I would go in that direction, at least mm. certainly as a conductor, impossible. Yeah. I mean, so I read, having moved to America, I read that you studied piano composition and conducting with Gustav Meyer. Uh, how did you end up to become a conducting student of Gustav Meyer? Was that something that was offered to you or was it was there something that happened along the way that made you think, Do you know what, I'd really like to discover how to conduct? Was it being in the situation where you were in uh, repetitor situations as a pianist and you thought, well, maybe conducting classes would be beneficial for me in the future? Interestingly enough, when my family moved to America, we didn't know anything. We didn't know anybody. We, we knew mm. my... Uh, my mother's family, but they were not musicians, but there happened to be a piano shop just down the road, literally 150 meters down the road, Virilli's Piano and Organ Store. <laughs> 
And that's where I met a lady who was to become really the most important musical influence in my life. Her name is Norma Verrilli, V-E-R-R-I-L-L-I, and uh, just one of the greatest musicians that I've ever met in my life, a complete musician. She could play the piano. She could sight read anything. She had perfect pitch. She had the ear. She could play by ear. She played the clavichord. She knew early music too. She knew, and she knew the all the songs from the, uh, you know, the, the American Songbook, the mm. in Hollywood and all that. And and she played a lot of Bach and a lot of contemporary music. And um, I had some good training when I was young in England uh, with Elaine Corman and Robert Keys, but. Uh, then I went to a, a, another level and um, and I was exposed to so much different kind of music. And I think that this, this what one could call eclecticism that is really a part of me, mm. um, I see as a great advantage. I'm open to so many things and I can do uh, so many things. But she was the key person. She introduced me to Arnold Franchetti. Arnold Franchetti was an old man who studied with Richard Strauss in Munich, and he was in Connecticut, where we, where we had moved, and he taught at the Hart College of Music in Hartford, Connecticut. I would work with him privately. Um, Norma, my, my teacher, had worked with him when she was younger, and so I studied with him. I wasn't the greatest student uh, um, of composition uh, because I didn't have the mindset nor the discipline nor the organizational skills to concentrate on it i was so busy already once we came to america i started playing for that choir and the and the school choir and playing for those soloists who needed a piano player i could sight read all of a sudden i became you know like uh really like a a, a, a professional if you like mm. so that that kind of contemplative or solitary existence that was uh, composing was never really me. But he wrote some pieces for me. Uh, he was a wonderful composer. And uh, for me and my teacher, um, uh, as a two piano sonata and uh, sonata for me. And, and we, my teacher and I would play two pianos and read everything, all the symphonies and all the transcriptions. Um, Gustav Meyer happened to be the conductor of the Bridgeport Symphony, which is in, in the town where I lived with my parents. Yeah. Now, uh, yes, and now he his main job was teaching uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, there at the, at the very well-known school, music school, and, and also teaching at Tanglewood, uh, where the, the summer home of the Boston Symphony. Now, I never worked with him in an official uh, situation, you know, I never went to music conservatory, mm. but I watched him work in Tanglewood as an observer. And then I spent time with him alone and we talked about different things. And uh, he, I would have him come when I st started to conduct later. Uh, I had him come visit me and watch me rehearse, you know, with the Chicago Symphony or with, you know, with other places. And he, you know, just helped me a little bit a, a one a, again a wonderful musician a real musician mm. all these people were really complete musicians so that to me was always very very important um one can see in five seconds that i'm not a conductor who's had a tremendous training in terms of the gesture that's a you know i'm one can see can see that immediately and it, it's something that i struggle with and I've had to build my technique not because Gustav Meyer didn't teach me right it's just that I didn't spend enough time with him I mean mm, yeah. uh, his main focus anyway was about knowing where your center was mm. and this is very very important for a conductor having the the center of gravity where everything is somehow the, it's the fountain from which everything is born it's it's your grounding it's the home base Yes, Trevor Pennant talked about it when I chatted to him about, you know, he feels that um, you know, he's better at some music because the, the music comes from that that place in him that, you know, he feels that he, you know, things sort of come from his stomach rather than further up from his heart or his chest. That's how he, he talks about it, that where he thinks his conducting comes from and his musicality comes from. Is that the sort of thing that he was he was talking about? That's, I think, exactly right. Mm. I mean, we all have 
a certain affinity. But I think as a conductor, I mean, with the amount of music, different kind of music that I conduct, I, um, I can't afford to, to say to myself, well, I'm better at this and better at that. Mm. I, I, others can say that, that's fine, but I'm too omnivorous, uh, <laughs> musically speaking, to uh, allow myself to, to fall into that trap. I, um, also, I think you, you have to challenge yourself yeah. Uh, all the time. But this existence as a young person of, you know, playing the organ in the church, playing for, for my father's students after school, playing recitals for the college students at the University of Bridgeport, you know, um, it, it was uh, playing in a night in a piano bar. I, mm. I did it all. I did all of that. And uh, um, finally, an opera house, an opera company, uh, uh, formed in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And after they'd done a couple of years, um, they needed a pianist at a certain point. And I was called upon to save um, production of, I think it was Cavalleria and Pagliacci. And I, I went and all of a sudden, you know, uh, I, I, I started to do what would then become really my life. Uh, yes. I then became the chorus master of that company. And I, I think I did both. I, did, I played the rehearsals and I was the chorus master. So it was a fantastic training in a way. But, you know, the rehearsals were less than a week. It was put together, you know, <laughs> although it was very, very quick. Mm. But I started playing for a conductor. I started to realize what that was. And to start, I was able to observe what a conductor actually does. Yeah. You know, yeah. what's his job? What's the job of a conductor, really? So where do you think... Uh, I'm, I'm going to briefly pop out of the, your story and, and hone in on something you just said about your own conducting style and technique. As you say, you know, you can look at certain conductors and they, they obviously come from a school, be it the Moosin School or from the Panola School or, you know, even something like Gustav Meyer. I've read his book. It's all about the ictus and the point of the beat. And um, uh -huh. he has this particular style. You say that you, you don't really come from anywhere like that. But I'm assuming that through your experiences as a repetitor and, and in an opera, you, as you've just said, you're observing what a conductor does and how a conductor works. Do you think that certain conductors you work with, their style of conducting just technically came into you and, and became part of what you did at the beginning? Uh, and then how have you sought, I mean, have you been very self-critical about your beating and, and your the, just the technicalities of conducting since then? Well, after having begun to play for other conductors and at simultaneously um, meeting some people that helped me start conducting, mm. you know, that observing others became very, very important. Now, because conducting has basic beat patterns and everybody says they do those patterns, but everybody's somehow different. Yeah, of course. Is it not yeah. true? Yeah. They're yeah, very, yeah. very different. Yeah. But the key period for me was when I, in 1985, 86, I met Daniel Barenboim and became his assistant for six years. Mm. And there, um, of course, I, I watched his technique. I watched his way of working. And <clears throat> his technique is very personal. Yes. One, you can poke holes in it and you could say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But he certainly achieves the sounds he wants and he certainly makes everybody listen. Yeah. So I knew from the beginning that it was more the how to achieve sounds, how to comment on what people are doing, how to rehearse. I was always attracted to that more than specifically the beat, if it should go more over there or more over here. And maybe that was laziness on my point, uh, from my part, excuse me. But I think one of the most difficult things in conducting is knowing how to rehearse. How do you not only put something together, but inspire the musicians along the way, include the musicians in your way of thinking, get the musicians to be like one lung, 
um, get them to think in one direction. That to me is the fascination of conducting, not that the beat is clear. Obviously, look, if you've got very little rehearsal and nobody can read where you are, and I'm certainly not to that point. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, oh, nobody but, said you were. <laughs> uh, but I, but of course, I mean, there, there's, there's a threshold, of, of course. But I think if you cannot rehearse properly, then you will never really, really, really make it. Mm. Unless you have some kind of incredible gift for performance, that something comes out of you that is so remarkable, so special, that goes beyond the preparation mm. that you've done to get to the to the night of the concert. I don't, going back on what you just said, I don't think it's laziness, and I think often young conductors or conductors young in their career you know because i didn't start conducting until i was much later i was you know in my 30s but we do spend too long looking at the minutiae of what our wrist should be doing how far across the second beat should go in for you know what a, what a, a silky smooth upbeat looks like when actually as you said the the process of of getting from the first read through to the concert through rehearsal and, and enabling people to perform, enabling people to feel the musical journey that everybody's on is far more important than, than just doing those things. Um, you know, it's in the end, it's the same as, as a sportsman. It, you know, whilst we can all learn to play the perfect cover drive, it doesn't matter if it actually looks rather ugly and keeps going for four. It doesn't matter. It's the, the end result is, is a score on the board. And it's exactly the same with a concert. You want to get everybody in the room or an opera performance, everybody in the room moving in the right direction. And, and you can't do that only by just having a flawless technique. Um, so I, I don't think it's laziness at all. I think, you know, if anything... It's possibly the way I learned things because I sat through 22 years of other people's rehearsals and saw how to do it and how not to do it. Um, and so that was <laughs> washing over me all the time before I learned what to do with my hands and my arms and my eyes and my well, in my body. Um, yeah. Did you meet uh, Daniel Barenboim when you were the rehearsal pianist at New York City Opera or did, or did that come uh, at another stage? I was the rehearsal pianist in Barcelona at mm. the Liceo, and I was rehearsal pianist at the Lyric Opera of Chicago at the mm. time. But um, from Barcelona, I went also to the, I then hopped over to the Frankfurt Opera. Mm. And from there, I, so I was doing three things in that year. Uh, I, was, I didn't have a full contract with e any of these places i didn't want to be pinned down yeah. so i had the luxury of having these sort of guest contracts it was sort of unheard of at the time but mm. i i managed to swing it uh, but i went when i was in frankfurt uh i was recommended to go play some auditions for the new ring that was to come up in 1988 in bayreuth mm. that daniel barenboim was going to conduct but this was in 1985 and he needed a pianist he well he was looking for a Brunhilde and he was looking for a Wotan and he he loves to tell this story because this was in the Philharmonie in Berlin and I was this you know this little guy at the piano with this incredibly statuesque Brunhilde in front of me you know and she starts with Electra and she sang a bit from uh, Tristan and Isolde Act one, and Barenboim turns to uh, Wolfgang Wagner and says, I don't know about her because she hasn't opened her mouth yet, but him I want. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and, and that's what happened in that's 1986. Brilliant. In 1986, I was in Bayreuth um, uh, working as his assistant, and uh, that's how we met. And I, yeah, six years with him at, in Bayreuth at the uh, Orchestra de Paris and in Israel. Yeah. The first thing I did with him was in Israel with the, the Da Ponte cycle um, with the Israel Philharmonic and uh, Jean-Pierre Ponel, which is mm. one of the formative experiences of my life. Well, I mean, um, Daniel Barenboim has come up previously with Domingo Hindoyan, who has just recently got the position at the yes. Philharmonic. So there is another name, and I wonder how long you were assistant to him. 
whose name has not come up on this podcast, and I'm, I'm interested to know what the differences were between assisting Daniel Barenboim and assisting Michael Geelan, who is a conductor, German-based, a German conductor, had done a lot of things in Germany. He did come to the CBSO once, I remember it vividly, he did Mahler 5, um, I really enjoyed that week. What were the differences like between between the two um, approaches, between Daniel's approach and Michael's approach, and, and what you ended up doing for either or both of them? Yes, Mikael Gielen was the music director of the Frankfurt Opera, and uh, I'd never seen anything like him before in my life. What I mean by that, um, the intellectual rigor, mm. which could be read as cold, mm. but it wasn't. I had the great good fortune to be able to play for him, sitting very close to him. He was very... I wouldn't say minimalistic in his gestures, but his musicality was in tight spaces. In other words, he wouldn't give oodles of room. He would mm. give just that amount of room to create the music, the musicality, if you like. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. He was less able to do that in front of the orchestra. He's, he was much more tightly wound in front of the orchestra, mm. but playing for him, Oh my goodness! Uh, played the Ring for him. I played Bohem for him. Rosen Cavalier for him, and so a very diverse repertoire. And and I started to learn about the importance of the words mm. because of his intellectual rigor. The the text, the declamation of the text, in particular in the Ring, what it means, how you bring it across, how you act it became so incredibly vivid in front of me mm. that that was a thing, <laughs> that it wasn't just the music and the voice and that the words behind it. Now, I'm saying something that's very obvious, but it's not so obvious. I know I can list you uh, two handfuls of singers who don't think of the words when they sing. Which seems bizarre, you know, doesn't it? Seems which a, seems bizarre. Yeah. But, but, you know, it, it's a, when that is incorporated, the real meaning of the word and the real um, pronunciation, the onomatopoeic factor of language, how that creates rhythm, how it creates timbre, how, and, and then the, the direct of a given language, Italian being completely different from German, German being completely different from Russian, French, what have you. Um, that... All that was born in with Michael Gielen. Um, yeah, he could be quite cantankerous, a difficult customer, because he was wound up so tight, a composer mm. also, but just, again, a, a totally complete musician. Mm. Mm. You know, not just a fancy conductor or somebody who's, you know, got stick technique. I mean, he could hear anything. Mm. It's just amazing. And so I've always been attracted to these kinds of musicians. Mm. I remember his rigor when we, and I, when I, as I said, he came and conducted Mahler Five. I remember looking at him, thinking this, well, this is a much different approach than at the time Simon Rattle was music director. And now I was sitting at the back of the orchestra, thinking this is a different approach, but it's not a wrong approach. It's just a different approach. And I could see you could see the almost hear the cogs whirring and, and the ears fanning out and listening to everything all of the time and I, I was fascinated by it and it was a shame he never came again I, if he did he maybe only came once more I'd love to have played for him uh, a, a lot more so how does one get from being assistant to Baron Boehm and Gielen and and then up to become music director of Den Norska Opera in Oslo I've spoken before to people who've gone through the Kapellmeister system and normally it's taking on performances uh, uh, of a run or something that's in repertoire how did it happen for you to go from being the rehearsal pianist and repetitor and vocal coach and then up onto uh, the podium itself it's very interesting with me that though I spent quite a lot of time in Germany Frankfurt Bayreuth mm. two uh, in Frankfurt two seasons and and in Bayreuth 6, I didn't go through the German system of mm. Kapellmeister, of meaning, yes, jumping into performances, no rehearsals. I mean, it's, I'm not knocking it. I mean, a lot of conductors go through that kind of training. It's trial by fire, mm. but it never appealed to me. 
I, 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 I would say to myself, what's the point? You survive the performance if you're lucky, <laughs> if it yeah. doesn't fall yeah. apart in yeah. your hands. Um, so I was fortunate um, at New York City Opera, first of all, and then Frankfurt to meet some singers who worked in both places. Uh, it was a couple named Robert Hale and Inga Nielsen. Robert Hale is bass baritone, who is having a whale of a career as a Wotan mm. and the Flying Dutchman and other things. And he sang at Salzburg Festival everywhere. Um, and his wife, Inga Nielsen, uh, a Danish soprano. And I coached them at the New York City Opera. Uh, they happened to get me as the coach and I was the new kid on the block. And they just started raving about me and said, oh, you play the, the piano like an orchestra. You have to conduct. I said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? You know, hey, hold on, hold on. Oh, yes, you have to conduct. And so she, well, no, he, first of all, got me my first conducting gig, which was, listen to this. Uh, he had a friend in Illinois, in Kankakee, Illinois. And it was, uh, there was an orchestra there. And I was invited to come and conduct something and also to play something. So I played the Mendelssohn G minor piano concerto, believe it or not. <laughs> Um, that's a lot of notes. You know? It is a lot. It's an awful <laughs> lot of notes. Yeah. And uh, and I conducted the Clock Symphony of Haydn. Um, while he conducted, he conducted me in in the concerto and uh, conducted something else. And I had one rehearsal to try to get this symphony together. And I kind of knew how to somehow having no technique whatsoever, but I kind of knew what I wanted and and you know, told everybody what to do and sort of got through it. And she got me concerts. His wife got me concerts in the backwater towns of Denmark, where right. she was from. She was a big star in Denmark. And, she, and people wanted her to do concerts of arias and, uh, and musical numbers and stuff, where I would do overtures in between and all that kind of stuff. And I would play the piano and that. And so I ended up in South Jutland, at the symphony orchestra in South Jutland, uh, all of a sudden doing these kinds of concerts. And the shock was that they invited me back without <laughs> her. Mm. Um, so at that time, so I did these kind of overture things, but they invited me back for symphonic things. Mm. And so for a while I was doing only the, the little conducting that I, that I did, these re-invitations that I got um, were mostly symphonic things mm. it's very interesting finally in 1987 this would have been the early 80s mm. but um in 1987 inga invited me to conduct uh la bohème at the uh, norwegian opera where she was making her debut as mimi mm. and that was the first opera i conducted uh that i, I with rehearsals that's the difference you see yes um yeah. and but and that's when i discovered what i was then to become because mm. at the first piano rehearsal piano staging rehearsal i just took over i took i told everybody how to sing i told them how to pronounce the italian i told them what the char how the character had to be performed i told them how to act I told them, you know, I just did everything. Mm. And it just poured out of me, all the experiences that I'd had, all the watching, the observing that I had done. Though none of it was, you know, hands-on experience in terms of conducting. And as I said, my, my technique was probably rubbish, but I knew how to do the job. I mm. just knew it. And um, that was a huge revelation. I mean, Bohem is not an easy score any day of the week hmm. and but i just knew how it went you know i got through the difficult bits just through will through force of will and knowledge and just a feel for the feel for the idiom hmm. and hmm. uh and that's how i started my relationship there eventually uh being reinvited and becoming the music director there in 1990. That's a wonderful story. Um, absolutely wonderful story. Part of the, the joy of this podcast 
is that over the course of you know 50 odd episodes by the time your episode comes out everybody's journey is different some of them seem you know to want to become a conductor from the age of nine and have planned their journey and it works out and others much like yourself and myself you know so it sort of happens in a much more much quicker way and and, the, and there you are you're suddenly placed in this situation and you feel like you're at home you know you feel like you're in the position you know how this works even though you've never done it before you just know this is me I know what I'm doing now um and so how long were you at Norwegian Opera as uh, as the music director because you not long after that you then did 10 years at Le Monet in Brussels so to, how long to, did you overlap between both well there was no overlap there was supposed to be an overlap in 1992-93 season mm. but I had a falling out with the management um there in the, at the Norwegian Opera uh not my fault, by the way, just, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I conducted regularly from 1987 to 1992. Mm. I was regularly in Norway and I conducted a very varied repertoire. I did all the, you know, I did the Verdi's and I did, but I also conducted uh, Macropolis case in Norwegian, Yenufa in Norwegian, Cosi Fantute in Norwegian, but did uh, Baloi Maschi in Italian, uh, Aida in Italian and, uh, uh, Rigoletto and so many other things. Um, I loved, loved being there. It mm. was a revelation to be music director. It was that was it for me? Fam- a sense of family, uh, you know, regular faces. You're, you're accumulating a relationship, if you like, and and yeah. everybody's really going in this on the same direction. It was a, that was another revelation for me. Uh, but so in nineteen in my first production there as music director, 1990, was Ballo in Maschera. And the people, the new administration at the La Monet Theatre in Brussels, the wonderful opera house, were there during my first performances. My manager told them, you know, his, uh, you know, this young guy who's just starting in Oslo. And, you know, they came at dinner that night. They all but invited me to become the music director in Brussels for <laughs> two years later. Wow. And that's and that's what happened. In fact, I mean, I didn't know Brussels from anything. I mean, I had no idea. I didn't realize it was a it was a, a boutique house, very you know, very a stagione system, meaning they performed one opera at a time only, rehearsed one, performed one. Um, it was a very refined uh, and sort of esoteric. The esoteric values were very, very high. Production values, extremely mm. important. The, the how the things looked, uh, how they were produced. I knew I somehow had to go. The falling out in Oslo just sealed it, and in and I was to go a, a year later. I was supposed to go in the nineteen three three ninety four, and all of a sudden, I'm going in ninety two ninety three, and here I am. I'm conducting as my first production as music director Zalome and. Uh, and I think at the end of the season, I conducted Meistersinger in that first season for the first time. You know, that's, so it was amazing. Uh, I'd played Zalome as a piano player. Uh, so Zalome was familiar to me, but Meistersinger was a new adventure. And with José Van Damme, you know, <laughs> no less. Wow. And, and Dale Dusing as Beckmesser, you know. I mean, mm. it's just amazing. I, I, I was thrown into all of a sudden you know, working with a whole different category um, of of singer and certainly producer. Were you spending most of your time, I mean, obviously, if you're a music director, firstly in Oslo and then in Brussels, you have a certain amount of time per year where you have to be there. You know, operas, as we, as we know on the podcast, take anywhere six to eight weeks maybe longer and you're you know you're there for the for the run of it how much time were you spending cultivating relationships with other orchestras in symphonic work at this time i know you'd had a relationship in israel with the israel fillers principal guest but you know what percentage do you think you were doing um in a year yeah it's difficult to put a percentage on it in the 90s i was regularly uh conducting you know the big orchestras in the states Mm. not meaningfully what i mean by that is that i wouldn't go every year to the same orchestra but i yeah you know i went two or three times to cleveland and to new york phil and to boston and to chicago 
um, it didn't feel like me yet in those situations. I, I can't tell you why mm. uh, exactly. I think I probably wasn't totally ready mm. for them, even though I, I did some good, good things, but I don't think I was ready mm. for that kind of exposure. Um, that's one of the difficult things about being a young conductor is my God, the speed at which you can be exposed to the highest level and that speed at which you can, you know, which it can all go wrong. I mean, mm. if, if you're lucky, you'll survive that. But I was lucky. What saved me was the music directorships yeah. that kept me in, in one place. That's what builds a, a real conductor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, is 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 those things much later when I realized that I had to do the same thing for the symphony orchestra at my symphonic conducting my development of that I have to get a music directorship of a symphony orchestra I realized that quite late on yeah. and um, because I needed to make the same investment that I was making with the opera companies now in at La Monet, during those 10 years I spent there, I was lucky enough that they did concerts too. Mm. Uh, uh, very seldom in Norway and certainly very, very seldom uh, in, in London uh, mm. because you have so many symphony orchestras in London. I mean, uh, I, I mean we have done some with the Royal Opera House, but, um, but as music director... At La Monet, I had the opportunity to do both opera and symphonic stuff, and that probably presents the ideal situation. Yeah, where you can do both. I know Ludovic Morlo mentions because he was at La Monet as well. Um, yes. he mentions doing that, um, and also um, the flip side, which was when he was in Seattle, that the Seattle Symphony also did opera. So the 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 percentage was different. You know, La Monet Orchestra sometimes yes. did concerts, and Seattle sometimes did opera. And how he he felt that it, it could help both orchestras by doing that. Um, You've just mentioned the Royal Opera House. You become music director of the Royal Opera House in 02, and you're still there. And in 05, you get the symphonic orchestra that you you wanted as a music director. Uh, excuse my pronunciation of the Orchestra dell'Accademia Nazionale di Santa Cecilia in Rome. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Holiday spent in, in Abruzzo every year for the last you know eight years. It, it sometimes helps. Um, <laughs> I've got a question specifically for you. In previous podcasts, I've asked people about the differences between different orchestras in different countries when they've been music director in, let's say, Norway and America or whatever. I can ask you this because, you know, as a, somebody born in, in the UK for, of Italian descent, uh, you're, you're music director of the Royal Opera House and the music director in Rome. Um, often this can can descend into a sort of um, list of stereotypes about what various people in various countries are like. But seeing as, you know, you work you have for the last 16 years had a dual role with both orchestras what differences are there would you say between the way that the the british musician per se and the italian musician in rome per se works how or are there none well the first of all one has to point out the obvious contrasts between the institutions one is a yes. symphonic outfit and the other is a is a lyric outfit you know yes. and mm. and uh, obviously the opera house is much more complex uh, much more expensive and uh, and yeah, different world. The visual aspect and the type of of room that this music is performed in is mm -hmm. different from the the concert hall. Um, I think it's quite well known that British orchestras tend to be extremely professional. They can sight read brilliantly mm. and. That's where I get back to, you know, I think you have to have, you have to be able to bring something to the table because after a couple of rehearsals, they basically got it. Yeah. You know, you have to, you know, to go beyond that. Um, you really have to have something to say about the music, to develop it and to, and to, yeah, to make their time feel like it's time well spent. Um it's more difficult to read British music, musicians because they're not overly effusive. You know, I, um, in, you know, in Italy, I have my dressing room happens to be uh, quite close to the 
the leaders of the orchestra, their dressing rooms. The, yeah. the, and, you know, I'm being kissed 40,000 times a day, you know, as, <laughs> as is the Italian style. There's that kind of, you know, at the end of the concert, people in my dressing room, you know, that, that kind of that kind of conviviality. It's just not an English trait. No, and no. in terms of, um, I would say, the Italians, though less professional, that they're certainly getting there in in Rome because of yeah. years of my insisting that you know the discipline of of how to be in a rehearsal and the concentration and preparedness and all that. Um, I think perhaps my Rome orchestra uh, has a a greater flair on the surface for color and yeah. that which is beautified things that need beautification, if you like. Hmm. Whereas. And the acoustic pushes that in Rome. Mm. I have a big, big space, 2,800 seats. The Covent Garden acoustic is quite dry. Mm. So the way I work with the musicians is completely different. I've got to be very, make sure that they're working with length, the ends of phrases. It can't be clipped and it can't, you know, and of course it depends on the music. So I work with the orchestras differently, but mm. the idea is to bring the level of flexibility and listening capability from London to Rome and to bring the symphonic color world from Rome to London, if you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. And it's a wonderful answer because it goes to show the, how a conductor thinks, and that's the whole point of this podcast, is that you know, you're constantly working out what you should be doing in one place but also what you you should be bringing in across from one world to the other and it's a wonderful answer i know exactly what you mean at this point i asked tony papano two questions about his work at the royal opera house i asked how the repertoire was chosen whether it was led by finding a specific voice that would be perfect for a specific role whether it was led by a particular criterion he had personally, or if it was a mixture of many, many factors. I also asked him how the Royal Opera House was planning to come out of Covid and what the long-term strategy would be. This discussion is now a Patreon-exclusive companion mini-episode, which can be heard by going to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and becoming a subscriber for just £5 a month. Details are in the show notes below, and it is very quick and easy to join. I've watched two wonderful series on BBC Four uh, with you presenting, and I'm assuming you wrote. Uh, there's one about the the voices, great voices, four part series about the great great voices of the world, and also uh, a series about Italian opera. I think I'm right in saying, is that something you really enjoy doing? Um, and and are there any other things in the pipeline for you to do? Um, at any point in the future, because I think you do them brilliantly. I think you you don't dumb down. You are willing to explain, and uh, but you don't you know you don't dumb the whole thing down. And you really are an advocate for the beauty of opera and of singing. And it comes you come over wonderfully on the TV. Are there any anything else in the pipeline? Well, thank you very much. Um, I just to I I didn't write those programs. I rewrote them. In other words, they would write them, and I would totally change them <laughs> that's that's how it that's kind of how it worked well but, it's got to um, sound like you but saying you speaking yes. you know not not somebody else's yeah. script yeah yeah exactly mm. and uh anyway um there isn't the bbc that's been a a tricky thing because when i started when they started asking me for more things mm. i did one thing about arias which i didn't enjoy it because the arias we chose all of a sudden got changed because of, of I, I, well, I wasn't doing the repertoire I wanted to do. And I didn't feel because they, they're so caught up with a historical uh, chronology mm. that that means I had to go back to Monteverdi again and start all that stuff a handle. And, and in other words, I, and I'd already done that in the opera Italia thing, Mm. that I did, uh, you know, about the history of Italian opera. Hey, anyway, and then 
if I did, I wanted to do master classes and things like that, which I'm, which I love to do, mm. but they wanted a, a competitive uh, aspect to it, you know, like mm. the voice or like the, you know, that, and I said, no, no, no this no, is no, not for me. No. 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 So at the moment, there's nothing in the pipeline, unfortunately. But for instance, the other day, over two days, I recorded with the ROH Orchestra, the La Voix Humaine, mm. for a BBC, what will be, it's BBC's uh, um, co production with a film group, uh, and with Daniel Denise uh, doing the part of the, of the woman on the telephone. This amazing piece, a 40 minute monodrama. And we recorded it with her in a different room uh, and uh, with analog uh, equipment that allowed no time lag. So I had headphones on, I could still hear the orchestra. She could hear the orchestra and could see me on the screen and I could see her. And we recorded this thing so that when she films, the idea is that when she films, she can sing live mm. and the orchestra will, there will be the back, uh, the, the um, soundtrack, mm. um, you know, so that she can, they can do different things, different interpretations. It's fascinating. I never believed it would work, but, um, but there you have it. So I have done something for the BBC and it just took two days and I enjoyed it. Amazing. Uh, uh, to an amazing degree. Mm. Well, it's a shame that there are no more, documentaries or um or in in the form that you like to do them in and i agree with you a competitive element in the masterclass forget it that's just, yeah that's horrible um yeah uh, i mean it was bad enough when they came up with the idea of the maestro program with you know celebrities learning yes. to conduct um but singing no definitely not i have one last question before we do the 10 questions tony and it's one that every conductor has answered um when you come to learn a new score do you, being you, sit at the piano and learn it and uh, play it through on the piano? Or do you prefer to sit at your desk in silence and use your inner ear? And when you learn a new score, are you a scribbler of things in your scores? Are you a marker-upper like me with red, blue and black? Or are you one who likes to keep it totally virginally white? What's your approach? With a complex contemporary piece, I don't go to the piano first. Hmm. I... I am a marker upper, mm. uh, but I, you know, in those complex pieces, you need to figure out a lot of things. First of all, you need to mark in big the time signatures, you know, because there are so many changes and you have to, as the piece is going by, you have to be able to see them mm. clearly. But not only that, you have to group instruments together, see, you know, what's the thread of the piece, which is much more difficult in a contemporary piece uh, sometimes. For anything else, I tend to go to the piano certainly to bash out the harmonies mm. because it's the harmonic journey that ultimately is, is the most important journey for the conductor. Mm. It, that's, that's his compass is the harmony. Mm. And if you're really aware and in control of the harmonic journey, then your timing, your rhythm, the inflection will have a point of reference. There won't be, there, it, it, you'll get rid of that just arbitrary quality. It'll be grounded in something that's a part of a long development over time. Mm. I learn a lot at the piano, as I said before. So I, um, more than the past, I, go to the piano to play certain things you know um if i find a piano transcription for set like uh of uh schoenberg's Kammer symphony uh opus nine although it doesn't really elucidate but it <laughs> the, you know to the conducting of it but you get a feeling for those the crunchiness of the harmonies and and etc and the you know the the, the harmonic language built on fourths rather than thirds and all, all that kind of stuff. Mm. I think if you feel the stretches in your hands, you feel also the effort of music is sometimes the effort of it has to come across. <laughs> Otherwise true. it just stays, it just stays 
it was a great German word, schlicht, sort of very, very, you know, plain and flat terrain. Um, So I don't mark my scores up in red and blue like I used to, but I realized that when I'm conducting, I don't see red and blue. I'm Mm. not colorblind, but I only see pencil. Right. So if I had pencil, red and blue, the red and blue might as well not be there. So I just continue, I do it with pencil. Hmm. Well, it's a question that um, I've been messaged by student conductors and young conductors who love, you know, to geek out on how we all learn our scores. And there hmm. seems to be about a 50-50 split between those who do mark up and, and those who write nothing. But it's also that how people approach it. And I think your your what you just said about harmony is so and harmonic rhythm is so important to any young conductor to get the feeling of knowing where the how the journey must be and when to relax and when to tighten up and all of that yeah uh, i think that's, that's such an important point or tip even to give to a young conductor the the most important yeah tip. <laughs> well yeah i think you're right yes <laughs> Tony, it's 10 questions time, which some conductors love and some conductors have not loved at all. Let's find out what you're like. And I start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the popping of a champagne cork. (laughs) And I hate techno. Oh, techno music? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hate it. I've, I've told this story before on the podcast, but it's worth telling again that my wife and I were once in Epinay in France and we were staying in a rather cheap hotel. We'd gone there for the weekend and we were just going to sleep and there was a bar below us and we could hear the music and we were just going to sleep and at five to two in the morning, this voice screamed down the microphone, techno! And then the whole room started going, dum, dum, dum. <laughs> for an hour, it was, oh, it, the definition of hell. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. Totally agree with you. So therefore, there'll be no techno music if you had 24 hours free. Um, so what would you spend it doing if you had 24 hours free? Today, I would say... It would be in the company of my friends sipping a really nice wine. And I love talking about music, but mm. I don't have an opportunity to talk about music so much, and especially at this time. So if we could, it could be musicians, being with musicians and talking about music. It could even be conductors. That's very rare that <laughs> conductors are together and they talk about music. Um, but that, that, that's, that's, a dream. that's a dream day off. Well, you're telling me, I mean, you know, since March last year, that's been basically what I've been doing is speaking to your now number 70, 70 different conductors. And it's been a joy. Every time I come off these Zoom calls and I've finished the interview, I think, oh, I wish I could have kept going and just talked about music, mm-hmm. talked about what it is, what it means to be a conductor. So I agree with you. You know, it's a joy we rarely have it back in the, you know, in the real world and our old lives is to sit with another conductor and just chat um yeah lovely way of spending a day off now the next two questions um some people have struggled to answer them some people find them easy because you know they they're they're happy to discuss our their colleagues number four is who would be a favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear uh john barbaroli Mm. um more and more i listen to his early halle recordings and the new york phil recordings Mm. and and he was not a success in new york but those recordings are phenomenal yeah yeah i mean he had the great misfortune to come right after toscanini so you know i mean yeah uh, but he was of course i identify you know he's a guy with an italian name and you know he's he's british but there's an italian heritage but his sense of sound and and um, architecture and in many different kinds of repertoire beautiful Madame Butterfly f- sensational Mahler 7 with Halle mm. I mean you know that kind of uh, uh, breadth and then the, all the English music all the Italian opera you know not only this Butterfly but you know it's conducted live and just it was just a great musician you know mm-hmm. well he's a name that's not often come up in the previous 69 episodes uh, or interviews um so 
Brilliant. Uh, Barbara Lee, that's excellent. Now, the, possibly the harder question, which Daniel Harding said was cruel, uh, who would be a favourite current conductor or conductors? Well, I have a tremendous admiration uh, for Daniel Barenboim because I, I grew up learning how he thinks. Yeah. yeah. And so when I watch him, I, I not only hear the music, but I... I'm involved in the thought process behind it. Um, I don't that mean that in a presumptuous way. I just yeah. mean that I had so I was so close to him for a long time, and uh, I think there are so many conductors today who have really special gifts that are, that have managed to stay individual in a mm. time where it's that's very difficult because. You know, there are so many conductors. Uh, it's so easy for homogeneity to become a thing, you know, yes. in, in our culture. Um, you know, perfect technique. They look great, you know, and, you know. But um, I, I don't want to name any more names than that because I, I admire a lot of my colleagues. You know, yeah. what's not to admire um, about, you know, about Simon Rattle, about Christian Thielemann, about Daniel Harding, about about Daniele Gatti, they're very different. Yes, yes, they are. Yeah. They're very different from me. I'm very different from them. Pavo Yarvi, you know, uh, mm. these guys, uh, uh, Gustavo Dudamel, you know, I mean, all, all these guys are hugely talented, but very, very different. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, Yannick Neze Sagan, you know, they're all different. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? You know, there's physical difficulty and there's mental difficulty. Yeah. There's technical difficulty. Yeah. Those things for an Italian boy like me, Cavalleria Rusticana is probably the hardest thing I've ever conducted. It's uh, short. Uh, I'm supposed to be able to conduct it because <laughs> of my history, because of my last name. And I probably conduct it quite well. Mm. But I'm finished after that piece. And, uh, and you know, there's always Pagliacci waiting uh, yes, after the yeah. interval. Um, it's technically a, a very, it's, it's, it's got such big bones. It's hard to maneuver it. It's, and yet it needs all incredible flexibility it, and, and inevitability of the rubato, of the, mm. of, the, of the push and pull of the music. And, I find it technically hard. I find the Easter hymn very difficult because the course is walking, usually walking on as they begin that and to coordinate that um, with the brass. It just, oh my goodness. So it may be an unexpected title to hear from me, but but that's, you know, Goethe Demerung is nothing in comparison. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? My wife. <laughs> oh, brilliant answer. And does she go uh, with you everywhere? Well, you know, if you go to Rome... Almost I mean, everywhere. Yeah, Almost I mean, everywhere. You can't blame her not, not wanting to, you know, wanting to go to Rome with you, but... Um, well, that's a brilliant answer. Um, you'll give my wife ideas, though, about, about always wanting to come away with me. But that's a brilliant answer. Thank you. Number eight. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I would probably change the level of isolation that a conductor often feels. Mm. I, the reason I say that is because let's face it, you are responsible for hiring people. Mm. And if you have friends and they're musicians, do you hire them? Mm. The answer could be yes. If it's no, there's always going to be a why mm. and a difficult situation. Um, I think that's one of the difficult things to maneuver. It's, so, it, so what happens is I think you don't become too close to people mm. for their protection and for your protection. Mm. Um, I, and I don't like that. I wish that weren't the case, but it is the case. Of course it's the case. I mean, you know, that's very true. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, 
a really good answer to a, a tricky question. Uh, I apologize. I don't apologize for asking it because uh, you knew you were going to be asked it. But it, yeah, it's uh, that's a really, really good answer. Um, and not one I think that's come up before. I think that's a really good answer. Thank you. Something a little bit less serious. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I'd probably like to be an interviewer. <laughs> actually. Mm. You know, I've done it a couple of times. I interviewed, I remember when I interviewed Placido and I've interviewed all those big singers. You know, I've done interviews with Bryn and, you know, and, and all those people like that. I mean, I'm no Michael Parkinson. I'm no you or anything like that. But, but, but I, I enjoyed doing it and I was able to, to stimulate the people. So I think I could do that well. Well, that, that made me shudder thinking, you know, if you wanted to be an interviewer, I wonder what he makes of my interview style. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, well, funnily enough, I'd never interviewed anybody before I started this podcast. And I sort of went back and watched a few things. And I think the most important thing I want to do is let people talk and not butt in too often. You know, if you can keep it flowing and keep it moving. But I love what I've loved is just listening to people talk and, and seeing the passion and, and, you know, now and again, going off the beaten track, the one that I wanted to go on because to chase a point of view. And I think it is just chatting and, and being with people is a very, very, interesting thing so again another wonderful answer i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad you you sort of complimented me that's very nice <laughs> <laughs> if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink any one of my wife's soups which she's become a real master at during this lockdown and the finest bottle of condrieur wine I can find. Condrieu is a, is a Viognier grape. It's uh, from the Rhone and it's extraordinarily uh, aromatic and faded roses, faded violets. It's a mm. very special white wine and, it, um, and it's one of our favorites. And uh, yeah, not to, I don't get to drink it too often because uh, it's a, really a, a guilty pleasure, but that would be certainly do the trick. Well, a pleasure it's been to do exactly what you've just talked about, which is to spend 90 minutes talking to another conductor about music, about conducting, about what we do. It's been wonderful. And Tony, I hope in the future uh, we meet and we can maybe share a glass of wine and carry on chatting again. Oh, with great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an Austrian conductor who started his musical life as a viola player with one of the world's greatest orchestras, and has since gone on to international stardom, becoming a music director in Norway, Sweden, Germany and the United States. Until then, bye bye! <laughs>